Well, uh, I don't know how. Pull it up, because it doesn't seem to lock into place. Yeah, I think that's the one that's weird. That's weird. Yeah, yeah. So we bring the other one from the other. No, no, no. It's all good. It's all good. Okay. So, uh, how's everyone? You all good? It's good. It's good to see you all. Good to see you and Mitch. Good to see you guys. Um, so, uh, let's just pray first, and then we'll, we'll talk about what we're going to talk about. Dear Lord, we thank you for the time that we have together. Thank you for who you are and for um, the fact that you want us to be uh, close to you, that you want us to draw near. So we draw near now, Lord. We invite you into our presence and we say thank you in advance for what you have to say. Please speak beyond what I, whatever I could ever say. Um, and Lord, we, we are listening. Jesus name we pray. Amen. Okay, so uh, I, I have an experience to tell you. Well, it's not an experience. Something happened to me uh, last week, last Friday. I went to a workshop um, to become a, a trainee, like a, a registrar trainee. So when future GPs are coming up, uh, I can train them. Really, the, the real reason I did it is so that when mum and dad go on holiday, we could still have a trainee in the clinic so that it can offload pressure off of me. So that the last... Um, incident that happened a few weeks a few months ago would never happen again anyway so when we were at this workshop um we were talking i was talking to a few other uh guys and and girls who were in the same position as me and um anyway they were like feedbacking on their uh times as a as a trainee themselves we were kind of reminiscing about the bad days and what happened one guy who's this very like uptight uh, intellectual guy who's young, he's just a little bit older than me. Um, he said that when he was training, the thing that he craved the most from his like mentor supervisor was feedback. He always wanted feedback because he felt, how do I know if I'm doing a good job? How do I know if I'm, you know, heading in the right direction? How do I know I'm not being a, uh, a bad doctor or whatever else? And so he would like literally sit down with his supervisor, his mentor, and he would say to him, okay, so how do you think I'm going? Like constantly. Um, and then he'd always wonder if that feedback was genuine. Like, you know, are you just being nice or like whatever. So anyway, this had me reflecting um, on, uh, I, I don't know if you relate to that. Uh, does anyone relate to that? Was that experience? Okay, that's great. That means you're healthy human beings that want to grow. Um, I, th- I relate to that, not in my job, but I relate to it from the point of view of, um, uh, from the point of, view of my, my walk with God. I don't know about you guys, but there are so many moments in, in my life and in my walk where I feel like, is, is, am I doing okay? Like, am I close to him? Uh, am I being more Christ-like? Could I be doing more? And then especially when I stuff up, Especially when I fail, I'm like, how far does this set me back? You know, was am I even, you know, really close to him at all? Do I even know him at all? And all these kinds of things. Uh, Does anyone relate to that? Right. And I think, you know, we are called to have a relationship with God. We're called to have a relationship with the being that we believe um, created the universe, created us. Um, and uh, supposedly loves us. And how are you supposed to do that? How are you supposed to have that relationship? How are you supposed to um, be in love with someone you can't see or hear or touch? Um, And how are you supposed to feel close to that person? Um, And so therefore, how do you know that you are close to that person? So that's what we're going to talk about tonight. What up? Um, That's what we're going to talk about tonight. We're going to talk about what it looks like to be on this journey um, of faith, what it it looks like to be on this journey of relationship with God, and how do we know that we're actually walking in step with God? Um, Because guess what? Us in this room and and me, um, we're not the only ones that feel this way. We're not the only ones that have this doubt. Um, Everyone, literally from the beginning of the church, had this same, uh, like, how am I going? Like, am I close to God? And how do I know? And so that's why Peter, 
wrote about this exact topic in the book of Second Peter. So this is going to be our like thing that we're going to sit in. I'm going to pull up a whole bunch of verses, but pull out your phone, <clears throat> pardon me, your phones, your Bibles, and pull up to Second Peter chapter one. I'm going to have a look at uh, what Peter has to say about this whole thing. So. We're going to start reading from verse 3. I'm reading from the, the ESV. That's important because some words are going to definitely be different to other words of yours. So if you're, But it's fine. You can still read from whatever you've got in front of you, but just warning you in advance. Okay, Second Peter chapter 1, beginning from verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So right off the bat, he's saying, that, okay, you want to know whether or not you're in relationship with God? You want to know if you're doing this whole Christian thing right? Well, it's God's divine power that's granted to you all the things that pertain to life and what it looks like to be godly, what it looks like to be in relationship. So it's not on you right up front. He says that it's not on you. It's on God. Okay. And then he says this through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So through Jesus Um, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through Jesus, or sorry, through them, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So in other words, it's not on you to have this relationship. It's not on you to secure this relationship. It's on Jesus. It's on God. And it's through Jesus and what he did, both while he was alive and on the cross, that he has secured for you what it looks like and what it is to be someone who becomes a new creation, who becomes in relationship with God. And it is through the power of what Jesus did on the cross and, and the Holy Spirit that he's entrusted and given to us that will take you along this journey, right? And then he does this. In verse 5, he lists this thing. Well, let's just read it and then, then we'll, we'll go through it. Verse five, for this very reason, so because of what Jesus did on the cross, because of the relationship that you have with him, because of the Holy Spirit that he's given to you, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. All right, that's a list. That's, you guys count, I counted earlier, eight things that he lists. And it's eight things that he's listing one on top of the other. This is not a random list that Peter has just thrown out into the wind. This is a list that Peter has sat down and thought about. And he said, hmm, these are like the building. Have you guys ever built a, a, deck, a tower of cards? Have you built that? You've got to get the first row just right to be able to build up the second row, right? And then the second row has to be pretty sturdy to get to the top row, right? This is what Peter's doing here. He's saying, this is a building block tower and it starts with faith and it ends with love. And it's, I don't want to say hierarchical because I think they're all very, very important, but I do think that he intends to start with faith and ends with love um, as faith is the beginning of our walk and love as the culminating um, perfection of our walk with God. Um, and, uh, um, and what we're going to do is we're going to literally break down these eight things because I don't know about you, what does it mean to be godly? What does it mean to have self-control and to uh, you know, have brotherly affection, but also to love? Like, what is he actually saying here? So we're going to break down these eight things. Um, we're going to evaluate. And this... I, I would hope, and as I was reading it, this to me is the litmus test to tell you how in step you are with God, how your relationship is doing. Because you see, it's not a test, right? A relationship is not a test. If you're ever in a relationship and it feels like a test, run. It's not a healthy relationship, all right? A relationship is not a test. But there are markers that will tell you whether or not you're in a healthy relationship. If I am not communicating with my wife... It's not a healthy relationship and she's not communicating with me. It's an unhealthy relationship. If I am not putting her needs ahead of mine, it's not a good relationship, right? So these are the markers. It's not a checklist. 
these are the markers and the signs that say, here's what it looks like to be empowered by the Holy Spirit, to draw deeper and be in love with God and to actually be transformed by him into the new creation that we're supposed to become. Okay, you on board with me? All right, let's go through. Let's start with the big one, faith. All right, now, just well, let's get some participation going. What, uh, what does faith mean to you? Beautiful. Love it. In fact, I love it so much, we're just going to end that there. No, faith, yeah. Faith, the Greek word here is pistis. And pistis is, uh, and faith, anytime you read faith in the Bible, Old or New Testament, faith is a word that means trust. Faith is a word that is not just simply belief, it's a, a, a relationship word. It is a word that means that I trust you because I know you. And um, you know, vice versa. It's this dynamic thing that happens. Uh, and uh, if you don't believe me, let's have a look at Hebrews chapter 11, the faith chapter of the Bible. In verse 6, it says this, um, uh, the writer says this, without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So, you can't begin this journey of relationship with God if you don't trust him, if you don't have faith in him, right? You can't please him if you don't trust him. Imagine, imagine you're in a relationship with someone and they're like, oh, you know, let's, uh, let's go on this roller coaster or whatever else. And you're, you're scared or whatever else. And you're like, no, I don't want to. It's like, just trust me. Come on, it'll be fun. We'll have a great time. No, no, no. Like, no, I don't really care about that. I just don't want to. Like, but just like, trust me. Like, listen. It's impossible to please God without faith. It's impossible to enter into a deep relationship without trusting him. And the, it's really interesting that the author of Hebrews writes that it's two parts. It's yes, that he exists, right? You can't have faith in someone that you don't think exists at all, right? But it's also um, uh, trusting that, um, uh, uh, that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. And what the author of Hebrews is not trying to say, he's not trying to, or she, we don't know who the author of Hebrews is, but what they're not trying to say is um, just, uh, you know, believe he exists and believe that he's going to give you like heaven at the end of your life because that's not who God is. No, no, no. What they're trying to say is believe that he exists, that he, he's around and believe that his heart for you is good. Believe that his intentions for you are good. Know who he is. Know that his love for you that he seeks to reward you, that he seeks to engage with you and that he has a heart for you, right? So do you believe that? Because if you don't, that's the beginning. You've got to cross that hurdle. In uh, James chapter 2, verse 19, James says, uh, you know, good on you. You believe that God exists. Well, even, even the demons believe that and they tremble. So it's not simply just about believing he exists. It's about knowing him, trusting him, having that relational dynamic with him, right? So that's faith. Really simple. Got me on board? All right, let's move on. What's the next one? Virtue. In my translation, it says virtue. Uh, some of you guys might have goodness or excellence. Yeah. Uh, what, what does this mean? What does virtue or goodness mean? Well, the Greek word here is arete. And in a nutshell, what it means is uh, moral excellence. Moral excellence. Um, so if we're thinking about it as building blocks, so first step is knowing and trusting God and uh, trusting him out of a deep relationship and, and loving him. The next step is to have moral excellence. That, that escalated quickly, no? Like... You go from just, you know, love him and trust him to all of a sudden be morally excellent, be virtuous, be good in everything. I fail at that. How about you guys? There's no one here that will achieve that to the perfect, perfect standard that God has. But you know what? This is what we strive for. This is exactly why Peter actually started this list by saying, um, uh, make every effort to do these things. Right. And so when we when we claim to know and to trust the God of the universe who supposedly loves us, then and who's perfect in every way. Well, how dare you be anything other than morally excellent? That's a high bar. That's a really high bar. And it's just number two in the list as well. But but um, you know what? The great thing 
is that we don't do this alone. And in fact, um, God does not depend on you to do this. Uh, Definitely not alone. And that is exactly why he gifted us his presence, his Holy Spirit to live inside of us um, and to empower us to do this. But we make the strides, we make the steps. In um, uh, James chapter 2, uh, he, he says this in verse 14 to 17. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, is, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. So the idea is, Guys, if you proclaim and profess, I love God and I trust him and all this kind of stuff, I'm in a relationship with him. And then you see someone who needs something or you come to a crossroads where I'm going to click on this website or I'm not. Or you come to a crossroads of I'm going to hang around these people or not. or I'm going to drink this or I'm not. I'm going to, I'm going to do this drug or I'm not. And you veer in a direction that you know is not what God wants for you, you know is not morally excellent, well, guys, we fall short and your faith is dead. Your faith means nothing in that moment. But the great thing here is that God is there alongside you. He's there to give you that nudge. He's there to give you that willpower. He's there to give you that strength to be able to say, no, I choose you. And you know what? It's a, it's, a, it's a cycle that feeds off of each other. Only when you love God and only when you trust him deeper can you actually follow him in those crucial, critical moments, right? So it's not on you, but it's also something that you need to aspire to and you need to be very sensitive when God prompts you and says, this is what I want from you in your life and not to let those moments bash you around and, and you kind of follow whatever, whatever the wind kind of uh, blows you into. So you can't be morally bankrupt if you are going to be someone who follows God, right? We, how was that? That was rough. All right, let's move on. Next one. So on top of faith, on top of pistis, on top of virtue and, and being morally excellent, arete, uh, comes knowledge, comes genosis or, or gnosis. Sorry, I pronounced that wrong. The Greek is gnosis. Knowledge. Again, like, what does this mean? You're supposed to become, is every Christian supposed to become a Bible scholar? Is everyone supposed to know the Greek word and not mess up when they pronounce it like I just did? What, what does this mean? Well, knowledge, uh, particularly in the Hebrew, is experiential. You, when, when you, whenever you read the, the Old Testament in particular and it talks about knowing, it's talking about experience. Um, that's why the, uh, you know, when Adam knew his wife, Eve, and they had a son, that's an experience, right? It's not that Adam learned more about Eve. No, no, they experienced each other. And, and that's, uh, that's love. That's, that's knowledge, right? So, um, but it's, it also is understanding. Yeah. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and God calls us to be wise. We are called to know him both about him, his ways, his character, but also experientially in deep love. Um, Let's have a look at Hebrews chapter 5. It says uh, this in verse 11 to 14. We have much to say about this. So this is, uh, again, the author of Hebrews who's trying to like give a crash course in theology to their their audience. And uh, they say, we have much to say about this, but it's hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact... Though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. So in this, in this little passage, this idea of being instructed in the ways of the Lord... It's supposed to be something that is, is graduating. It's supposed to be something that is uh, progressive. You're not supposed to just have a, 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 a static view of the Bible and of God for the whole of your life. We as human beings never have that about anything in our life. Think about just a simple topic. Think about uh, uh, gravity. 
when you were a, a kid, maybe all you knew about gravity is I drop a ball and it falls. But as you get older, hopefully you learn a little bit more about it, but maybe that's not the best example. But the idea is that anything in your life is not supposed to be something that's just one done plain. That's the end of that. I've learned it move on to the next thing no it's supposed to be something that grows in depth and and in experience and that's exactly what we're supposed to do in our uh, understanding our knowledge of god um and our relationship with him it's supposed to be this thing that goes from milk to to solids it's supposed to be something that's maybe even passive maybe it's someone like me talking to you but then it's active it's you digesting the word for yourself and digging deep for yourself in the word of God, right? It's supposed to be going from something that's really simple and one-dimensional to something complex and beautiful and satisfying, right? So where, where are you on this building block? Where are you falling with this uh, whole um, element of this journey with God? Um, and in, in Psalm 46, verse 10, it says, uh, after the psalmist has just given this beautiful account of um, God's power, um, his uh, victory for those who love him and his, um, I guess, defeat of those who kind of curse him. The psalmist writes that God says uh, in verse 10, be still and know that I am God. And again, that word know comes up, but here you get a very different perspective on this word knowledge, this word know, instead of it being like, be instructed, be informed, grow in your understanding, you get this idea of like, just stop and experience him. Stop, don't fight him. Don't try so hard by yourself. Stop, depend on him, love him. Let him minister and give you uh, uh, everything that you need and be satisfied by him. So, do you know him? Like, do you know him from the fundamental sense of like what he says about himself? Have you drunk the milk? Yeah. Uh, are you craving the solids? Are you stopping the passivity of something like this and actually desperate to open up your Bible yourself and say, who are you, God? Speak to me. And then are you going to fight against the world and like, you know, rummage around and, and whatever? Or are you going to be still and just be in his presence and know him from experience? Know what it looks like for him to love you. Know what it looks like for him to give you mercy and his grace. Know what it looks like for him to give you his strength when you have no strength. Know what it looks like for him to forgive you. Um, next thing, self-control. <clears throat> um, the Greek word here is egra. Yeah, I'm going to stuff this one up as well. Egrakatia. No, hold on. Wait. Egratia. Egratia. All right. Egratia. So, self-control. Great. Self-control. Uh, this is another one that I stuff up in all the time. It's a high, high bar, high calling. There's no point just having faith uh, and... Um, oh, I got the worst memory in the world. Being morally excellent and knowing everything about God if you're not going to have self-control. There's no point to walk along this journey and then whenever something happens, everything that you believe and everything that you know and everything that you hold to be virtuous just goes out the window because you have no self-control, right? This is something that um, will take a lifetime of, uh, of dependence on God to learn. And will we'll take a lifetime um, of being honed by God. But let's have a read in um, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This is 1 Corinthians, for those of you who don't know, is a book that is written by Paul to a church that had no self-control. That were very, very bad. They would uh, mess around with each other. They would fight with each other. They would like take communion as if it was like a party. Uh, like it was a, it was a messed up church. And so Paul writes uh, to the, the Corinthians in this letter, and he's trying to correct a whole bunch of stuff. And this is what he says in uh, chapter 6, verses 12 to 13. He says, uh, he's quoting them. Uh, they would say, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything, Paul says. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. But what he's saying here is, uh, you know, you guys think, well, 
God set you free. God set me free. I can do whatever I want. I'm free. I can do whatever I want. He's just going to forgive me anyway. I can do whatever I want. Why do I need self-control? God's going to forgive me. And Paul here, and then they'll say something along the lines of like, like food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. I could eat whatever I want. It doesn't matter anyway because this body is going to be destroyed and the food is going to be destroyed. So like, why, if I don't need to care what I eat, why should I care about my self-control in other areas of my life, right? And Paul says, actually, um, uh, not everything is beneficial and I won't be mastered by anything. And then he goes on to say, the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And he flips it on, the, on its head. He says, you guys think that being set free by God means you can do anything you want. But, and this is something that Rebecca once said, when we were in youth, uh, Rebecca was one of my mentees in our like, little mentor group. And uh, we were reading this. I don't know if you remember, but we were reading this. And I asked the group, I said, what does this mean? What is Paul trying to say here? And Rebecca said something that blew my mind. And I will never forget it for as long as I live because it has shaped the way I view this passage and, and many other passages. And it, she, said, she said this, and this is exactly what is going on here, um, that because you have been set free, that is not uh, 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 something that means you can be crazy and wild. It is something that gives you greater responsibility, greater burden for, for love. She didn't say it like that, but yes. <laughs> so, and that's exactly what Paul is saying here. That because of what Jesus did on the cross, because of what he did to set you and I free, because of the cost that it, that it, you know, his very blood on the cross, it is for that very reason. Yes, you are free, but you were bought with a price and don't you forget it. And because of that price that you were bought with, you have this standard that you must live up to. Not because it's, you know, I'm going to judge you or whatever else, because there's no more condemnation in Christ Jesus, right? But it's because of the love and the reverence, because of the faith, because of the trust, because of the moral upstanding, because of the knowledge of God, that you reach this place of, I want to control myself. I want to control myself because I know what he did for me on the cross, because I trust him, because I love him and I know him, because I hold his standards higher than my standards, that virtuous, that moral excellence, right? Because of all of that, I reach this place where I say, I do not want to be mastered by anything. I do not want to be in a position where um, I can just think, you know, I can do something and it's not beneficial to me, right? And in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, so a couple of chapters later, and verse 24 to 27, Paul says, uh, Don't you know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Uh, run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I don't run like someone who's running aimlessly. I don't fight like a boxer beating at the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. In other words, I control myself because I know what's ahead. I know what's at stake. I know who I am and I know who saved me and who rescued me. So I train myself. I discipline myself. I control myself. I grow myself and expand myself to run this race to win. What the heck is the point in running a race if you aren't running it to win? Unless you're doing like a charity fun run or whatever else, but I don't want to talk to you. Get out of here. That's weird if you do that. So run the race to win, right? Um, okay, we're good? How are you feeling with that? Okay. Next word, next part, next building block. Steadfastness is what my translation says. Some of your translations might read perseverance or endurance or patience. The Greek word here is hupomone. Hupomone. I guarantee I'm not pronouncing any of these correctly. But hupomone. What the heck does this word mean? What does this mean in the context? I thought we just talked about self-control. Like, why are we talking about steadfastness as well? Well, here's the thing. Uh, Hupomone. This is the thing that doesn't just make you self-controlled now. It's the thing that keeps you self-controlled. It's the thing that makes you endure. It's the thing that when the fire is on the gold, it makes the gold only purer 
and not uh, disappear and vanish. It refines you. It means that you persist and you endure and you persevere. Um, and there is not one instance. <clears throat> this word is completely linked with another word. This, this word, if you want to, uh, you know how like we'll say things like, um, uh, this is going to sound stupid, but like brick brack or um, uh, yo-yo. No, no, no. Huh? No. Like, uh, you know, the, the words that we'll like put together that rhyme. And I, I can't think of one off the top of my head. But this word is always, well, not always, but, but it's typically coupled with another word. And that is hope. Hupomone and hope. Endurance and hope. Because great, good on you for having self-control in this scenario, this situation. And God applauds and we all applaud. And it's a great thing. But what's going to make you live a life that way? What's going to make you live a life of, in, of self-control forever and ever? And to endure that, it's hope. Um, and so when we look, um, uh, when we look at uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 to 3, it says this, Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, and this is the list of the, the faithful ones in Hebrews 11, um, so since we're surrounded by all these great witnesses, um, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance, with hupomone, um, the race that's marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured, he hupomoneed the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of, of the throne of God. Consider him who hupomoneed, who endured such opposition from sinners so that you won't grow weary and lose heart. It is because of the hope set before Jesus. It's because of what he knew was after the cross um, and the joy and the liberation that it would give to me and you and to hundreds of that, millions of people, billions of people. It's because of that joy that he endured it, that he persevered, that he hupomoned, that he had self-control to the very end. And it is because of his example that we are also called to endure. Uh, in um, Romans chapter 5, verse 3 to 4, um, Paul says, Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, hupomone. Uh, and hupomone produces character, and character produces hope. So it's this beautiful cycle that happens, where as we persevere and endure and, and continue to have that self-control, we do it because we have hope. And as... We hope that fuels our endurance and we see more of that hope come to light because you know what? We're not just hoping for what happens on this side of, of our life. We're not just hoping for heaven and, and, and the clouds parting and the pearly gates and all that stuff. You know what? We're hoping for his kingdom to come here on earth as it is in heaven. That's what Jesus asked us to pray. And that's what we're called to live as people who usher in the kingdom of God here on earth. Right? And so... As we persevere, we hope because, and as we persevere, we see that hope. We see glimpses of that hope come into this world. And as we see that hope come into this world and, and glimpses of that hope made reality because of us and because of what God's doing through us, then we can persevere more. And it's this beautiful circle that, that, that feeds off of itself. Um, Hupamone, how are you going? Are you persevering? What's it like when your friend or your uh, whatever, your person at work or whatever um, will attack Christianity or will attack something that you believe in? Or, or um, how's it, what's it like when you read something that's very confronting in the Bible and you don't know what it means and you don't know how you feel about God or, or whatever else? What's it like when life beats you down and some awful news comes your way or um, uh, you, know, you, f you feel like God is a million miles away and doesn't love you or doesn't care about you. Are you persevering? Do you have that hope set before you? Not, not delusional hope. It's not a hope that's coming out of thin air. In fact, Paul uh, gives another example where he says, this hope that we have is like a pregnant woman in labor. Or in Sarah's situation at the moment, it's like a pregnant woman who's enduring morning sickness. You have a hope that it will end and not only that, will it, it will end, that the labor will end or whatever else. 
you have a hope that on the other side of that pain, on the other side of that suffering, comes something beautiful, comes something greater than the suffering that you experienced, right? So how are you going with your perseverance? How are you going with your hupomone? Let's have a look at the third last uh, building block. So it's quite a tower. The next word is godliness. Some of you might have holiness written instead of, or piety uh, instead. The Greek word here is Eusebia, Eusebia. So what is godliness? This is the one that I spent the longest time on. Because what is godliness? And also, if I was writing this list, I probably would have ended it here. Like, what's higher than being godly, right? But no, Peter doesn't end the list here. Sorry, you're going to have to endure some more minutes of me talking. But uh, godliness, what, what does that mean? I would love to hear your thoughts. Um, what do you guys reckon? Well, in a nutshell, because, yeah, I, I didn't know either, um, it's being set apart. It's what holiness is. It's, um, it's being set apart for and following after God out of a deep love and rever- reverence for him. It's fear of the Lord, and it's the action that comes out of you when you fear the Lord. It is as you would read in the Old Testament, walking in all his ways, not turning from the left or from the right. It is following after him in all his ways. Um, a, maybe a good analogy here would be, because uh, in the Old Testament, and, and for people who would have read this back in the day, uh, particularly the Jewish people, they would know what this word meant. Uh, and Paul, being someone who was a Pharisee, this is like his jam. Like, and Peter as well, who's writing this. Like, this is their jam. Uh, godliness, holiness, uh, immediately the things that would come to mind would be the temple or the tabernacle you know, back in the uh, times of Moses. Um, or it would be the, uh, the sacred, uh, uh, the sacred uh, washing basin in the temple or whatever else. For us, we don't have any of that, so we can't really visualize that. But what I want to get you guys to visualize is your toilet. That is, that is the visualization we should have. You do nothing in your toilet other than two things. That's the only thing you do at your toilet, right? Um, <laughs> it is set apart for two purposes only. And that is all it's used for. This is what we are. This is uh, what Eusebia is. You are to be set apart for one purpose. And that is to follow the Lord your God. Something way better than what the toilet is set apart for. Um, and uh, the, the reality of this is that um, as we live this life, uh, it's, it's a very difficult life to live. Um, uh, and um, this is a well, like uh, Paul, going back to Paul, this, this was a word that was really important to him. And if you read the, the books, that, uh, the, the letters he wrote to Timothy, he was really concerned about telling Timothy, be godly, follow godliness, teach the people godliness. Like it was a buzzword for Paul. And so much so that in 2 Timothy chapter 3, when Timothy's having a hard time with his ministry, Paul writes this in uh, verse 1 to 7. He says, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than the lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people." Paul gives Timothy a list of literally everything that is not godly. And he says, in the last days, there are going to be people who are exactly like this, who are literally ungodly in every single way you can imagine. And yet they have the form of godliness. They stand up in positions like I'm standing up here and they say the things that I'm saying to you right now. And he says, have nothing to do with these people that live this two-faced life away from them. We cannot live this two-faced life. If you're set apart from God, you're set apart from God, for God. If you are uh, saying that you love him and you follow after him, and you're faithful and, and uh, that, that you call him and you know him and all this kind of stuff, then you cannot then go do any of these other things that would not be 
uh, godly and not be following after him authentically. And, uh, and other believers should stay away from you. Um, and that is, a, that's a, that's a, because guess what? We will all do at least one or two of those things on that list. Um, and it is by God's grace that we can repent and we can come back and we can um, be sanctified and made holy again. Um, and that is, because you know what? The temple would become unclean. There would be the utensils that they would use. And even the priests, as they would enter the temple, they would become unclean. And you know what they would have to do to go back into God's presence, to, be, to use those objects for God's uh, glory and, and sacrifice and things like that again? They would have to make those objects holy and they would have to sanctify them, set them apart all over again. Um, and we have to do that too. And the, the point here isn't don't stuff up. The point here is recognize when you do stuff up and have the sensitivity and the desire and the love for God to be set right again and to be made, uh, set apart again, made holy again. <clears throat> okay. Second last thing. Brotherly love. It's a weird one. Uh, another, some other translations might say mutual affection. This word, I think you might know in the Greek, it's philia. Philia or Philadelphia, not the cream cheese, but uh, philia. Uh, philia, uh, those of you who know study science, uh, hydrophilic or uh, whatever, yeah? What does, huh? Sure, yeah, that kind of thing too. Philia means uh, uh, love and affection. Uh, literally, it means uh, to have brotherly love or to have a, a mutual affection. Um, but what does it mean in this context? Well, in this context, it means that we are to be, if you're going to have faith in God, if you're going to be morally excellent, if you're going to be uh, someone who uh, has self-control, who, um, has, who knows God um, and who uh, is going to be enduring and persevering and who's going to follow after God and be set apart for God, then you're also called to be someone who creates an environment of love, who creates an environment of mutual affection, who creates a community. We're supposed to be people who create a community. Um, and if we are people who, as someone comes in to our group or community, we are prickly and we are uh, nudging them or kind of ignoring them or whatever else, you ha- your, your tower has just toppled. Um, you are called to be people who literally create an environment of familial love, love as if it's a family. Um, this feels like it's soft, like it feels soft to say, love them like they're your brother or your sister, but um, it's really hard to do. And not only is it hard to do, it's really powerful um, when, when that does happen. A lot of us take it for granted because we have grown up in an environment like this with people like this around us. Um, but I, I tell you, I, I see this every day. People crave to have what you have. People crave and long to be in community like you guys are and to have friendships that are literally like family. Many of you look at each other and don't see um, a, like, whatever person who you just randomly come in contact with. You see a, you literally see a brother or you literally see a sister. You literally see someone that you would do anything to, to help, right? That it, don't take that for granted. This is something that is wholly uh, godly. This is something that's wholly a gift from God. And this is something that you are called to cultivate. And it's not to become the exclusion of others. It's supposed to be something that snowballs. You know those cartoons where the snowball is rolled down the hill and as it rolls down the hill, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. That's what it's supposed to do. It's not supposed to be a snowball that just literally the same, stays the same shape until it eventually melts because different members of your group move to different states or whatever else and other people have uh, families and, and blah, blah, blah and you, you know, whatever, have different parts. No, it's supposed to be a group that literally just expands out of your control. This is what you are called to be, is to create this environment of mutual affection and love, this brotherly love, this philia. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 13, uh, verse 1 uh, um, the author says, keep on loving one another, keep on philia, phileing, philadelphiaing one another as brothers and sisters. Uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 10, Paul writes, be devoted to one another in philia, honor one another above yourselves. 
And in John chapter 13, Jesus himself, one of the last things he said before he went to the cross was in verse 34, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. This is what you're called to do. And yet, we're not done. The last thing on the list is love itself. But hey, we just talked about love. Yes, in the Greek, there are four loves. And that's why we were saying the Greek words all along to get to this one. Agape. You all know this one, hopefully. Agape. What is agape? Agape is not just... I care for you and because you care for me and we create this familial community where we all kind of help each other and love each other out. No, agape is above and beyond that. Agape is even if you hate me, I will love you. Even if it destroys me, I will love you. Not love in the weird sense of like, I'm going to try to be as nice as I possibly can, whatever. No, No, it's love in the sense that no matter what it costs me, I'm going to put you ahead of me, no matter what it costs me. And it is agape that God loves us with. It is agape that is what we see with Jesus on the cross. It is agape that we see that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Yeah. Um, this love, this agape, is best summarized uh, in the, the chapter of love, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Um, we're going to read it together. And I just want you to um, do one of two things or do both of these things. Every time you hear the word love, first of all, know that every use of the word love here is agape. Um, but I want you to replace that word in your mind with yourself. Um, and I want you to replace that word in your mind with God. Um, as you hear this, this is who God is. God is love, John says in the book of 1 John. Um, uh, and not only is this what who God is, this is the culmination of who God is, this is who you are supposed to be. Called to follow God in this way. This is the pinnacle of what you can achieve. And so this is what we are called to achieve. You ready? 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I'm going to read from the message version. I'm sorry if that offends anyone. If I speak with human eloquence and angelic ecstasy, but don't love I'm nothing but the creaking of a rusty gate. If I speak God's word with power, revealing all his mysteries and making everything plain as day, and if I have faith that says to mountains, jump, and it jumps, but I don't love, I'm nothing. If I give everything I own to the poor and even go to the stake to be burned as a martyr, but I don't love, I've gotten nowhere. So no matter what I say, what I believe and what I do, I'm bankrupt without love. Love never gives up. Love cares more for others than for self. Love doesn't want what it doesn't have. Love doesn't strut, doesn't have a swelled head, doesn't force itself on others, isn't always me first, doesn't fly off the handle, doesn't keep score of the sins of others, doesn't revel when others grovel, takes pleasure in the flowering of truth, puts up with anything, trusts God always, always looks for the best, never looks back, but keeps going to the end. Love never dies. Inspired speech will be over someday. Praying in tongues will end. Understanding will reach its limits. We know only a portion of the truth and what we say about God is always incomplete. But when the complete arrives, our incompleteness will be cancelled. When I was an infant at my mother's breast, I gurgled and cooed like any infant. But when I grew up, I left those infant ways for good. We don't yet see things clearly. We're squinting in a fog, peering through a mist. But it won't be long before the weather clears and the sun shines bright. We'll see it all then. See it as clear, clearly as God sees us now, knowing him directly just as he knows us. But for right now, until that completeness, we have three things to do to lead us toward that consummation. Trust steadily in God. Hope unswervingly. Love extravagantly. And the best of the three is love. Do you love like that? Do you love people like that? Are you agapeing others? Uh, even when it hurts, even when it's not convenient, even when it, it's um, uh, not going to be reciprocal. Um, and if you guys haven't gotten the gist by now, this list that we've just gone through, this, this list that Peter has laid out of what it looks like to follow God, to become more Christ-like, this is exactly who Jesus is. He is the faithful one. He is morally perfect. He does 
uh, he is the embodiment of God. He knows God fully because he is God and he knows us uh, completely. He has self-control and he endured to the very end to the cross. He was godly. He was set apart. He even left his throne to come and to be set apart for our sake. He created a family and he adopted us as sons and daughters and he loves selflessly and limitlessly um, for our sake. So this is who you are called to be. This is the tower of cards, the building blocks that we are called to climb and to strive towards, but not out of our own strength, but out of the strength of the one who did all of this because he's generous. He doesn't expect us to do this alone. He gives us the power to do this. All you have to do is just trust him and just try your best each and every day and be promptable. Listen to him when he corrects you. And whenever there's a moment where you feel like you fall short, you come back to him and you say, help me. I love you. I want to be more like you. And it's the journey that you will continue to follow. And then Peter concludes this whole passage with this final thing. And then we'll finish. Um, He concludes by saying this. If these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is nearsighted and that he's blind, having forgotten what what he was cleansed uh, from his former sins. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you'll never fail. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He who began it all will complete it all. All you have to do is stick close to him, love him, and let him correct you. Let him draw you in um, and uh, be the person he wants you to be. Because guys, we are the image of God. That's who we were created to be from the very first pages of the Bible. God created humanity to be his image on this earth. And so for us to do this, it's what it looks like to live in Eden. It's what it looks like to live the way that we were supposed to live, the way he created you to, to be. Um, so, so be what he, he created you to be. And there will be no greater pleasure or joy or um, uh, success that you'll ever achieve in your life than that. So let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for the time that we've spent. We thank you for who you are and for your high calling over our life. We thank you, Lord, that um, you don't just call us to this, but you lived it and um, you are it. Um, That all we have to do is draw near to you and be close to you and accept um, uh, your gift of your Holy Spirit in our lives and lean on you and rely on you. So, Lord, we put that as our goal and our mission. We want to be like you. We want to grow and uh, go on this journey with you completely to the end. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.